Hello and welcome to another edition of Thinking Aloud About Film. Uh, today we're taking a sideways step into the work of Pere Portobello and we're going to be looking at his first film, uh, Nocturno 29, which is currently first, a movie. His first feature film. First feature film. So I just want to say a few words about, about Pere Portobello because he is a, a figure that fascinates me that I don't know very much about. You know, he's one of these figures that if you read a little bit on Spanish cinema, his name constantly crops up, but in almost sideways. So I didn't know, for example, uh, that he was a filmmaker until very recently. Uh, but I'm surprised that I didn't. So I think we did... Vampire. Yeah. Uh, it's been a surprise and a delight to me to encounter his films. The reason why I knew him is because he's a seminal figure in Spanish cinema. He went to the National Film School whilst it still existed. It was shut down uh, in the late 50s. And whilst he was at the National Film School, he met people like Carlos Saura, who, you know, after Buñuel and before Almodovar, is probably the most uh, famous internationally uh, Spanish filmmaker. And he produced his first film, which is called Los Golfos. At the time when Los Golfos was showing in Cannes, he met Buñuel, right? And so he convinced Buñuel, who'd been in exile in Mexico, to return to Spain to make Viridiana. So here is the producer of Viridiana, uh, Los Golfos, and also El Cochecito, which is another kind of seminal Spanish film. This one uh, directed by Marco Ferreri, the Italian, yeah? This is how I know uh, Pere Portavella, and not, you know, as a filmmaker. I also knew, knew him as, uh, you know, he'd been a senator uh, uh, in uh, the Spanish Senate, you know, in those years of the transition to democracy. So he's very much a very important figure in 20th century Spanish arts and history. And actually, the arts element uh, can't be uh, underlined enough uh, because, again, you know, this was like just one of the uh, surprising things about just, you know, we decided to, to look at this film only because it was on movie, yeah, and because it was part of Pere Portavella, and I'm interested in it. You know, but the credits come on, and you see Lucia Bosse, wow, right? Like Lucia Bosse, you know, kind of the star of Ant Antonioni's Cronica de un Amore, and so on, you know, this huge Italian star of the 1950s. Again, she worked with Buñuel. And then Mario Cabaret as well. I don't know if you know anything about Mario Cabaret. No, no. no. He was a bullfighter, yeah? And, oh, right. And Lucia Bosse had, uh, you know, had left her film career to marry that most famous Spanish bullfighter of his time, which was Luis Miguel Dominguin. When Ava Gardner was filming Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, around the, you know, in Catalonia, in Spain with James Mason, which was cheating on Sinatra. Who did she have affairs with? Dominguin, very important affair, but also Mario Cabret. And later <laughs> on, Walter Chiari, who had been publicized with Lucia Bosse as, you know, the young lovers of, you know, mm. post-war Italy, right? Okay. Couple. So you can see all these various interlinks. Anyway, that is the cheap celebrity gossip aspect of it. <laughs> the other more important aspect is that what you see in the credits of this film are Anthony Tapies, arguably the 
uh, most important Spanish artist, excluding those famous ones that had a career in a way before Franco, right? So excluding Picasso and Dali and Jean Miro, Tapies, you know, he's, he's collected the Tate and, yeah, and mm, so on. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there's also uh, uh, Carlos Saura's brother, a very important Spanish uh, artist called Antonio Saures. And then the screenplay is written by Jean Ponce, again, you know, a kind of key uh, poet. Uh, and, you know, the composer, uh, Josep Maria Mestres, also uh, appears in the film. Yeah, he's the guy with the piano. So it's almost like a whole current of Spanish arts on the cutting edge of the experimental, yeah, or the experimenting with new forms, but who have also become really important mainstream figures are people who have contributed to this film. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you don't begin with that wow moment, you know, then I'm curious to know what you thought. I found it quite hard to engage with. And I, I, I'm glad I saw it. I mean, it looks great. It's very abstract. It um, looks beautiful. I mean, it looks amazing. The, the cinematography is amazing. It starts with this amazingly stark black and white cinematography and then later suddenly bursts into colour for, for, for short periods. Some of the editing is amazing. It, it, it kind of works, but it's quite hard to engage with. I mean, I, I've, there isn't really a plot. I mean, plot is really not important in the film. No, you no. Know, you get a sense that it's a couple uh, whose marriage is not working and, you know, they're seemingly interested in other things. You definitely see her, you know, the bourgeois woman played by Lucia Bosse with other men. So, and there's actually a discussion of that, which is really uh, a collection of, I think, dazzlingly played, especially by Bosse, who does it very wittily. You know, an exchange of dialogue that is almost a collection of non sequiturs, of which each line is almost uh, a witticism, yeah, a, 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 like a philosophy for life in a sentence or something, which, yeah. I liked all of that. I'm trying not to say I loved it because if I'm like brutally honest, there was, you know, and also this is something to do with watching it on television. There was a moment halfway through a very short film, I think it's 80 odd minutes where I said, oh, I need a break from this. It's kind of, you know, it's not quite making sense. A little bit like the film we watched previously, Ali in Wonderland, where it, it's, you know, the start of it was amazing. It didn't quite hang together, but it looked great. And the editing was great. And you know, if you were, if you were actually seeing it in a cinema and being forced to concentrate and, and focus, it would have had a huge, a much bigger impact. Yes. There were things that, um, that I want to comment on. So the film begins with this person in the countryside, the Spanish countryside, dry and mountainous, coming into view. And initially, I wasn't sure whether it was a man or a woman. And then it turns out to be a man, a very, very beautiful man. And you can tell that he's a man because he's got a beard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, then a woman comes into view, right? And they're walking together. And then, you know, she has a thorn in her foot. And... He squeezes out the thorn and alleviates her pain, let's say, right? That's the opening sequence. And actually, I was quite dazzled with the images again. You know, it's just so beautiful to look at and very sensuous in a way, right? Mm. And then, of course, the title comes on. And this I did not know about. I did 
have to read it, but it kind of makes sense. The film is titled Nocturne 29 because it had been 29 years since the Franco dictatorship started. So it's 29 years of darkness, right? So, so in a way, that's interesting. So you have, you know, this young couple, modern, hippie, yeah, long-haired, right? Which in Spain in those years, you'd get beaten up on the street with hair like that. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and then, like, this title, Nocturne 29, 29 years of, of dark nights, yeah? That kind of sets a point of legibility, I guess, right? Because what do you see afterwards? You see this bourgeois home with a maid, right? And um, Lucia Bosse walks, so the maid is arranging things, and, you know, you're given uh, a view of this very grand mansion, yeah, with lots of books, and then these kind of modern rooms, really. So the exterior of the mansion and the interior don't quite jive. One is very modern, one is very classic. And then you get Lucia Bosse looking extremely beautiful, you know, all in white, and she takes a shower, which, you know, someone mentioned that it's a reference to Hitchcock's shower scene. I thought, how? Where's the knife? <laughs> yes, like, just because there's a shower in the film and it's black and white. There's a woman and it's black and white and there's a shower. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, you know, um, but it's very interesting, you know, because you're then shown her take off her makeup, get into the shower. So all these ablutions. And then you see her through a kind of... Uh, I forget what the glass is called, but one that, you know, uh, you see the figure, you see the shadow misshapen, yeah, through that kind of window. And then I had a moment of kind of, I don't know, like a personal anger, right? Because, you know, it kind of becomes clear to me in a very unreasonable way, I must say, that, you know, you have to be a very rich person to make this film. And that all of these important artists of this period come from very rich families, right? You know, and that kind of my family of, you know, poor peasants, you know, barely earning a subsistence living, yes, kind of are not even represented in this film. You would not guess from this film, you know, that in 1968, Spain still had, you know, a large swathe of the population that, you know, was still living in the countryside and farming in ways that hadn't changed since medieval times. Like, that's nowhere present in this film. You could be almost in any European city watching yeah, this yeah. film, right? And actually, there is a scene where the mother of the husband walks into a bank. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, Alain Delon walking into the bank in Milan in Leclis. Like, you know, one could be the other, really. Uh, so, but then I thought, oh, you know, you're so unreasonable. I mean, kind of, you know, because of course, I mean, there are people living as they were living in medieval times now, and you're not giving a thought to them on a daily basis, are you? So, like, you know, kind of let Pere Mortaria do his thing, shut up, and try to understand it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it did, yeah, it did cross my mind mm, that, you mm. know, that this bourgeois world of ennui, you know, and art and ideas is a very rarefied world you know also if you think about the resources that were required to make this film just in terms of, of the you know the film stock and the color film stock this is not your average experimental film no it's, you know it's a, a, a an 80 minute experimental film not a two minute one or a 10 minute one yeah it's an 80 minute one done with film stars and 
with the help of some of the greatest artists of the century, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so you need money and connections and so on to make it. That said, you know, he had money and he had connections and he was a very successful film producer. You know, it's not his fault that he's so bright and so brilliant and so skilled and has such great <laughs> friends, right? Like, I, you know. Similar problems to me and you. <laughs> <laughs> How true that is. <laughs> you know, so, so I don't think we can take that as a negative, and I really do want to put it aside because, you know, then there were aspects of the film, A, that I agree with, like, it's a really Marxist film, and it's made at a time when it was illegal to be a Marxist, you know, uh, and, you know, to kind of convey all of the things that this film is conveying were, you know, illegal, yeah? Like, you know, the ending with uh, Lucia Bosse kind of going to buy cloth, you know, and actually the cloth that is presented to her is, you know, the the flag of Spain, the flag of Portugal, the flag of Switzerland, the flag of Brazil, and I think it ends with a UK one or something, right? Like, I, you know, a flag is just a cloth, you know, because, you know, one of the cliches of fascist regimes is always the fatherland, the fatherland, the fatherland, right? You know, and that was one of Franco saying, the fatherland, well, the fatherland, it's just a piece of cloth, right? Like, yeah, okay, that's kind of... You know, uh, uh, the flag is just a piece of cloth, right? The meaning is kind of created around it. Uh, so I think those are qu- kind of quite powerful. I think so, no, but I but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of context there that I think you're you're you know you're getting because of because of your background and because of knowing sure. knowing the background, which for me coming to it without much of that background and with with you know I've I've, I've I've you know, worked in Spain at one point, and I've been in Spain quite a lot. But um, but I, I but I, I I'm not so aware of aware of that history um, and that culture. And but I, know, I guess if comparing it to the kind of Egyptian films and the Taiwanese films we've been talking about, that I think those films spoke about that culture without you needing to know about the culture. Whereas this, I think you did need to know the background first. Well, they were narrative, right? Those films. And so this one is putting much more emphasis you know, on the meaning and feeling of the film, on symbols, right? So it does require an act of interpretation, yeah, of condensed uh, things uh, that is very different, you know, than your average, like, uh, Egyptian melodrama, right? Which gives you much more information than you need often, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, so, but again, I don't think it's a problem. I mean, I, you know, I think you can get things like, you know, all those military marches or, you know, those politicians intercut with clowns. Right? Yeah, yeah. And there's some great bit with, yeah, kind of into those kind of a puppet show, wasn't there? And it was kind That's of intercutting right. stuff. And, and just, yeah, really, yeah, you, yeah you, you, you got the point of what this collage was, was trying to tell you. So the film asks all these questions. Like, what is freedom? You know, what do you want to be free for? That freedom is always, you know, to be tied to an action, to do something, right? Like, freedom is the freedom to do something, yeah? It's not just something in itself. So, of course, you know, there's like these whole discourses of freedom, you know, even though kind of, you know, people are unable to act for themselves, right? So I think there's like a bit of like an existentialist uh, um, underpinning, you know, to, to this argument here. You have to take responsibility. You have to act. You have to act for yourself. Yeah, uh, you know it's very existential. Uh, but the other thing that I think really caught my eye was just the sensuality of the images. Lucia Bosse is so beautiful, 
Actually, there were moments with Mario Cabaret where he was filmed with the camera slightly on top of him, and he would bring his eyes down in those eyelashes. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, those are images filmed to be sensual, I think. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that I think are very striking. I was also very struck by the poker game, you know, in the film. So there are two instances of color in the film. One is that poker game, and the other one is when Lucia Bosse is, you know, at a department store, yeah, uh, buying cloth. Those are the two instances of color. And one of the first things that struck me about the poker game is that it's not Spanish. <laughs> that they're playing, they're playing with English American cards. The cards in Spain, and in fact, I think also in Italy, and so on. You know, they'd be different. They have different okay. symbols. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you know, like you have swords, yeah, and uh, uh, and so on, right? So there's kind of like an element of of foreignness, yeah, to kind of, you know, to all of that. Uh, I was very struck also by that scene with uh, Cabaret going to the bank, showing his key, yeah, the attendant at the bank having to open the, the safety uh, uh, box with his key. So the two keys have to work simultaneously. And then it opens, and what you see is a reflection of the old lady. And actually, it turns out to be Mario Cabaret in a wig. <laughs> yes. Yes? <laughs> yes. Wow, right? Like, what does that mean, right? And also, maybe I'm overstating it, but it now seems, again, quite a powerful image in a dictatorship, right? In a right-wing Catholic, you know, dictatorship. Though maybe not. I mean, yeah, like, I don't want to overstate it, right? I mean, so, for example, you know, there's a whole tradition of drag in the UK, and it's not necessarily liberatory, and, you know. Uh, uh, but, it, uh, but, you know, I think in a fascist country, it seems very, uh, very disturbing, a very powerful image, right? Uh, so, you know, and then there's that scene where he walks into the water, and he's just walking aimlessly, and, you know, he, he sinks into the water with the newspaper floating above him. I mean, I think they're very striking images. What they mean exactly, I'm not sure, you know, but I did love them, yeah? Yeah, and I, yeah. And, the, and I would also love that the last song in the film, is the song that closes Almodovar's The Law of Desire, and it's sung by Bola de Nieve, who is someone, this, this queer singer-pianist who remained in Cuba after the revolution, right? And who was one of the foremost entertainers of like these really sad songs. Yeah, but sung in quite a campy, high-pitched voice, right? And that that's the music that's used, again, you know, to close off the film. Uh, I think the song is, you know, what will happen to our love. You know, it's about love disappearing and dissolving. But, you know, I was very struck by the use of, the, of that song as well. So, so I think it's a very sensuous film. It's a very beautiful film. And it's kind of like a very pointed critique of a fascist regime in the middle of that regime. What it symbolizes is another thing. But I think in Spain, with art cinema... And this is a reason why I think Almodovar's films were so badly um, received by the critical establishment. Because their idea of good films were things like The Spirit of the Beehive or, or Carlos Saura's films, right? 
they were a bit elliptical, yeah? They were symbolic. They had to be deciphered, right? So actually, this is a more experimental film than that. It's not just art cinema. It is experimental. But it, do it does also have a trace of narrative, right? And I'm sure it's one of those films that you were meant to go see with your friends and, and you know, get the thrill of criticizing the regime through, you know, a, 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 in quotation marks, proper decipherment of the intended meaning, right? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it has to work on us in a, you know, a different way. Mm. But actually, I, st I think there's still a lot to get and to enjoy in this film. I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed the other, his other film I've seen, Vampire, um, which is also very abstract, but because he's that, that's a film about film and you can kind of understand what he's getting at, um, even though it is still quite abstract. But, yeah. I would recommend that people uh, uh, do take a look uh, with the understanding that, you know, it's not, it's a very pleasurable watch, but it's not a film in which you are expected to get every moment that is presented to you. Mm. Uh, it is nonetheless a wonderful introduction to an avant-garde cinema of another culture. Yep. You know, uh, yep. So I would recommend it on that basis. I loved it very much. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are thinking aloud about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. And we are on? We're uh, all over the place. We're, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on SoundCloud. We're on uh, Good Pods, I think we're now on. <laughs> which, I'm not quite sure how that works yet, but we are on Good Pods, which is a good thing. All right. Kim Kardashian likes it. <laughs> well, thank you very much for listening. Que llenas todo de alegría y juventud Y ves fantasmas en la noche de trasluz Y oyes el canto perfumado del azul Vete de mí No te detengas a mirar Las ramas muertas del rosal Que se marchitan sin dar flor Mira el paisaje del amor Que es la razón para soñar y amar Yo que ya he luchado contra toda la maldad tengo las manos tan deshechas de apretar que ni te puedo sujetar vete de mí seré en tu vida lo mejor de la neblina del ayer cuando me llegues a olvidar como es mejor el verso aquel que no podemos recordar